please join me in prayer as we come before God's word this morning. Father, as we now look to your word, we pray that you would use it in the way that you always do to expose the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, to show us the areas of our lives that are still needing to be made like Christ. And Lord, we, we trust your Holy Spirit then to, to change us. And so we pray that you would open our eyes to all that you would have to teach us this morning. And Lord, cause us to be those who are resolute in not just being hearers of the word, but doers also. We pray this in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Well, in the Lord's sense of humor, uh, I'll be teaching this morning on patient endurance through suffering on the heels of watching my Michigan Wolverines football team lose a heartbreaker last night in the college football playoff. But nevertheless, um, I'd invite you to open your copy of God's Word to James chapter 5, and we'll be in James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. We'll be studying this morning, James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12, and we're, we're dropping right into uh, the tail end of this letter, and so in, in doing so, I think it's helpful for us to recall some basic details about this letter that we'll be, um, this passage we'll be studying. So the, the author, the letter we are told, if you had a finger in James chapter 5 and looked back to verse 1, you'll see we're told the letter is written by James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Consensus is that this James is James, the younger brother of Jesus, the one who was influential in the Jerusalem council that we see recorded in Acts chapter 15. He was a leader in the early church, called by some the bishop of Jerusalem, the pastor of the Jerusalem church. Paul, um, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 19, he references James as an apostle. And second century chronicler Hegesippus, he recorded that James was known to have knees as hard as camels from his time spent in prayer for this early church in which he was a leader. James was martyred in AD 62. He was stoned to death by the Jewish rulers in Jerusalem. And so key things to remember about James is we're thinking about who is writing this letter. He, he knew Jesus. He had a, a pastor's heart, and he experienced the sort of suffering that we are going to see this morning that we are called to patiently endure. So that's the author, and he's writing, we see once again in verse 1, to, this is James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. This is really a shorthand way of saying to the people of God now spread throughout the world. A lot of New Testament letters we see written initially to specific churches, but this is written to the church as a whole, the universal church, to all people, rich and poor, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, anyone grafted into the people of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's an audience that surely has experienced persecution at this point. In Jerusalem, in Rome, at the hands of religious leaders, at the hands of the Roman uh, at the hands of the Romans, and it's a church that is being tested, a people being tested. They're an audience to his, who is in the midst of suffering. So we, we know who's writing this letter, 
kind of the context of who he's writing to, and then the structure of this letter I think is important as we seek to understand our passage and where it fits into the letter that James is writing. And the structure, if you've been here at Kenwood before, of this letter is a familiar one. It's a structure that becomes very clear if you've spent time studying the book of James or memorizing the book of James, as many of us did in 2021. And you'll notice as you proceed through the letter how the themes that are addressed at the beginning of the letter seem to be matched by different themes later in the letter in a sort of V-shaped pattern. We call this a chiasm. So for instance, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, James addresses steadfastness in trials. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, note that word, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then our text this morning, I'll just skip to the center of it, but in our text, it's the mirror of this passage in James chapter 1. So this is James chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And so you can kind of hear how these passages mirror each other in their use of this term steadfastness, their focus on trials and sufferings, and their focus on ultimately the blessing of the Lord and one being made perfect and complete and the, mer the mercy and compassion of the Lord. And this mirroring continues throughout the letter. As the rich and the poor are addressed in chapter 1, verses 9 and 11, so it's kind of the next step in this staircase. And the, again, they're addressed in chapter 4, verses 13, through chapter 5, verse 6. Sinful desires are addressed, and then addressed again in chapter 4. The gift of wisdom in chapter 1, in chapter 4. The use of the tongue, good works, all those forming this V with the uh, centering passage, the, the tip of that V, centering on James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, where James uses the example of partiality to speak of what grace through faith looks like in practice and how it should revolutionize our lives. And it, it ends with this kind of culminating phrase, mercy triumphs over judgment. And this is all important to understand because our understanding of James' teaching here in James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12, is intended to be informed by its mirror passage in chapter 1, and then filtered through this center inflection point in chapter 2. So, for example, as we, are, as we consider what we are to be patient in, in James 5, we're told, be patient, therefore, brothers. What are we to be patient in? Well, we consider... Uh, we consider James 1-2, we are to be patient in our trials. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. And what does this patience look like? Well, it's a joyful patience. It's a patience in which we are counting those trials as joy. And all of this is through the lens of chapter 2's teaching of grace. Understanding that we are following the footsteps of one who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. One who was whipped and crucified a man of sorrows, one acquainted with grief, and one who yet for the joy that was set before him patiently endured and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The grace mediated through his patient endurance 
in which those in Christ experience the grace of mercy triumphing over judgment should revolutionize our pain, patient endurance. So it's critical for us to understand how James has structured this letter because it helps us helps flesh out what is being taught here in James chapter 5. So then with all that in mind, as we consider our own trials and how to faithfully respond, what patient endurance and suffering looks like, James uses our passage this morning to teach us three things. So we'll have three points to our sermon this morning. First, in verse 7, he'll teach us our attitude toward suffering. So our attitude toward suffering in verse 7. Second, he'll teach us about our faith in suffering in verse 8. So our attitude toward suffering in verse 7, our faith in suffering in verse 8. And then finally, in verses 9 through 12, our works while we are suffering. Our works while we are suffering. So as we consider our attitude toward suffering, let's read again. Let's read verse 7. James writes, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See this phrase, therefore, and it, that's intended to link back to the teaching um, from the previous section here in chapter 5, where James writes of the righteous as they are being oppressed and, and murdered, that he describes how they do not resist the oppressor, but rather they cried out to the Lord of hosts. So what we see in terms of what they are to be patient, therefore... Therefore, be patient in what? Therefore, be patient, at, from in this case, the mistreatment at the hands of those around them. Mistreatment from oppressors. It's a form of trial in which we are to be patient. And, and thinking just of what these type of trials are in which we are to be patient, if you skip through our text to verse 10, you'll see the trial of persecution. The prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, as they're an example of suffering and patience. So we see persecution, the trial of persecution, as an example of a trial in which we are to be patient. And then in verse 11, we see Job's physical trials being highlighted. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The trial of physical bodily ailments being highlighted as trials in which to be patient. And these three examples, I think, comprehensively flesh out the trials of various kinds that James mentions in chapter 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. What are those? Well, they're trials of mistreatment by others, trials of persecution, physical bodily trials. And so for any of us who are here, so for all of us here this morning, as we consider this text on endurance through suffering, it speaks to all of us, regardless of what we are facing. It may be physical trials, it may be persecution and maybe someone who's mistreated you this text speaks to us this morning and in any of these cases mistreatment persecution bodily physical trials the question that can arise is this why haven't things changed maybe maybe you felt that question well up in your heart before the line of thought may be we've obeyed you jesus when you told us do not resist an evil person as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 39. We've avoided being anxious, but we've brought our prayers and supplications before you in obedience to Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. And you are the Lord of hosts. We've seen you act before miraculously to save your people, so why isn't deliverance happening? 
We've seen you heal, so why isn't healing happening? Why am I experiencing this persistent, painful suffering? And weren't you supposed to have returned by now? That's, that can be the line of thought that wells up in the midst of any of these kind of trials. And so James responds to this line of questioning simply by saying, be patient, brothers. Now, you all can, I'm sure, relate as either a parent, maybe as a child, to a time when you wanted something, and the reply was, be patient, to which the immediate response is what? How long? How long do I have to be patient? Well, James also proactively addresses that question. He's a, he's a pastor. He's, 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 he's seen these sort of situations before, and, he's, and he proactively addresses the question of how long by saying, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And the highlighting of the object of this patience, of how long it's to be, I think it's, I think it's meant to both teach his hearers of what they are, what they're actually be, waiting for, and then also to encourage them. So to teach them, it is to really just to reteach the words of Jesus in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, where Jesus had said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. So it's an ongoing patience until that day when the one who has gone away to prepare a place for them will return. And it's critical that they remember this day and this promise. So it is teaching them, it's reteaching them these words of Jesus of, of what this day of the Lord is, what this coming of the Lord is. It's also an encouragement because this coming day of the Lord, which is at hand, will be the answer of the prayer in verse 4. We're told, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed against you in verse 4, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So it's encouragement that these, this, this day of the Lord, this coming of the Lord, is a fulfillment of all the prophecies they've heard that fill the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Zechariah. It's the coming of the Lord of hosts, the commander of the armies of heaven, to rescue his true people once and for all. The one who promises vengeance is mine, I will repay, coming to avenge. That is the day that, they are, that James is encouraging them with. So in the one sense, you could say that James is saying here that you know that the day is coming when all this suffering will come to an end by nature of the Lord's rule and reign. You know this. He told you. The prophets foretold it. You know it. So all you have to do now is wait for it and not rob yourself of this reward by impatiently taking matters into your own hands or impatiently falling asleep or losing hope. The writer of Hebrews, he writes, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Holding our patience for this day, which is at hand, not, not seeking to establish God's kingdom for him by our means, not trying to change the terms of the deal in which we are told in this life we will have suffering, not growing weary and faint-hearted, but patiently keeping our confidence in our master, 
is how that day is a reward, a day of reward, and not a day of judgment. Now, what I think we can miss is that we know that patience is the right response in a whole host of areas of life. We know that patience is the right response. It's the chief virtue in investing. You have to be patient. You can't just expect everything to, to happen overnight. It's a chief virtue in cooking. You have to wait for something to, to cook, to be, to be edible. It's a key virtue in bodily training, as we exercise. And as James will now expound, it's a chief virtue in farming, from where we get a, a really helpful example of our patiently waiting attitude towards suffering. James wants us to apply the things that we know to be true in other areas of life and apply them to this area of our life, to our suffering. And so he writes in James chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 7, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. And this is really a glorious example. It operates on several different levels. Uh, I think on, on, the, on a base level, on the one hand, we are to wait to exhibit patience like a farmer. That's, the, that's kind of the basic principle here. The farmer doesn't expect that he will receive his reward, his harvest after the first rain. He doesn't expect to receive his reward after seeing the first sign of growth. That's not sufficient for harvest. No, the farmer is patient about it, not taking the small bud off the branch, but waiting until the fruit matures. At our old home, we used to have a peach tree in the front yard, and that was one of the hardest challenges, was keeping our kids from picking the peaches off the tree as soon as they looked like they were edible. You know, you had to wait. You had to let them continue to mature almost till they fell off the tree. And in this Middle Eastern climate, that, that day of harvest was signified by the arrival of the later rain. And the, our, the patience when enduring trials is to be like this farmer, knowing that a harvest is in store if one waits until the right time for vindication and deliverance. The fruit will be sweeter and fuller and more glorious by nature of it being mature and complete. And as we'll later sing, the calm will be the better for the storm that we endured. Also, in the same way that the farmer knows that the scorching heat of summer and the heavy rain are both evidences of the seasons running their natural courses, with the end result being a harvest of strong, healthy crops, so we should know that the scorching heat of persecution, the heavy rain of trials, the pruning discipline of the Lord, these are all there to help the crop of our life grow into a peaceful harvest of righteousness. And further, in the same way that the farmer was to wait patiently, trusting that the covenant God would prove himself faithful by fulfilling the promise of Deuteronomy 11, which we read early in our service, this is verses 13 and 14, we're told, and if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. So in the same way that the farmer was to trust the covenant God to provide the rain, so we are to trust the covenant God who has promised that he will bring to completion the good work he has begun in us. He will safely deliver us to the heavenly kingdom. So we are to wait like the farmer. And then on the other hand, maybe a 
a, a second deeper layer of meaning to this, to this uh, example that James gives. We wait patiently, trusting that the true farmer, the one who will one day reap a harvest of souls, that he will use and is using the seasons of suffering to complete us into the harvest he has planned. As we read in 2 Peter chapter 3, he is being patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. As we think about a field of corn, it can do nothing but patiently wait. It can't harvest itself, it can't water itself. It patiently depends on the farmer. And the farmer knows things that the crops don't know. It know the farmer knows of upcoming frosts, maybe making it more urgent to harvest. Or maybe a late arriving rain, making it wise to wait to harvest. And, if we, are to and we are to understand ourselves in this context, a crop dependent on our sovereign farmer. And if he is being patient, we can be patient. So if the example of the farmer exhibits these characteristics of patience, allowing the fruit or the crop to mature for the right season of harvest, James writes then, you also be patient. And the key to being patient is here in verse 8. And it's what we'll see as our second teaching from James in this passage, which is our faith in suffering. Our faith in suffering. James writes, establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. This term establish, it means to make firm or solid, to fix. The basic idea is that of stabilizing something by providing a support or a brace so that it won't lean or fall over. Think, for example, of a tree uh, newly planted. What do, you, what do you place in the ground around it? You place stakes in the ground attached to the tree to keep it from being blown to and fro by the wind while its roots are being established. For the, for the health of the tree, you plant these, you establish it, you set these stakes. Now, in our passage, we have been told, be patient. That is a directive, that's a command, requires obedience. And here we are told to establish our hearts. So this is another directive, right? You need to do the establishing. But I would submit that no, that's not the case. What we don't want to do is view this establishing as going on some sort of self-improvement kind of journey or regimen of doing the work to make ourselves strong. But rather, it is an establishing by submitting to the Spirit's supernatural strengthening. And I think our example that we just used can help us think of this. Just as the farmer would set the stakes to establish the tree, it's not the tree doing its own stake setting. That would be ridiculous. So the establishing of our hearts is done by the true farmer. And how does our Lord do this? Well, look at the end of verse 8. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. What I think James is getting at here is that our responsibility is to meditate on the hope of Jesus' coming and that it's imminent. And then when then what happens is that the Spirit takes that truth and renews our mind. He fortifies our heart with this sure truth of Christ's imminent return. This word then increases our faith, for we know that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And then when the fiery arrows come flying into our minds during our trials, 
They, these, they, they function, these, this faith functions as a shield. It's a shield of faith. And we extinguish these fiery darts flying at us. Those promises of Christ's coming are like stakes. They're set in the ground around us, allowing us to properly sustain the winds and storms of life. So then, this establishing your hearts that we're called to do is not a pull-yourself-up sort of strengthening done by us. It is a heart-establishing brought about by the work of the Spirit. And this is really the process that's attested to throughout the Scriptures. It's the process the Apostle Paul lays out in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17, in describing a suffering people. He writes, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Note the similarities in the process laid out in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10 as he writes to a suffering people. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. We see over and over again in the scriptures a link between the promise of establishing heart, of established hearts, the eternal promises in Christ, and a God who himself does the establishing work. 2 Thessalonians 2, may the Lord Jesus Christ himself establish your hearts. The God of all grace will himself establish your hearts. 1 Peter 5.10 And it follows that we need him to establish our hearts and strengthen them because he is the strength of our hearts, as David testifies in Psalm 73, verse 26. He's writing from a time of trials and he says my flesh and my heart may fail but god is the strength of my heart and my portion forever here we see even david looking forward beyond this life by faith at the way that the lord will forever be the strength of his heart beyond the grave beyond his sufferings beyond his persecutions and so as we encounter trials and sufferings one we are to be patient modeling the farmer. And two, we are to establish our hearts by feeding the engine of faith within us, by meditating on the truth of Christ's imminent return, of our eternal security. And as a point of application, if we are going to believe the promises, if we are going to be those who have faith and preserve their souls, we have to know the promises. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we must know these promises of Christ's return and of his farmer-like oversight of our trials. And a quick second point of application as we think about this call to establish our hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. If this is how hearts are established, then this is how we can minister to those in trials encouraging them with the truth of the coming of the Lord that is at hand. It's better counsel than any, any counsel we can come up with in our own wisdom. And if you'd like to spend more time thinking about this application of counseling others through, this, through the coming of the Lord being at hand, I'd encourage you to study 1 Thessalonians, in which the Apostle Paul twice 
tells the Thessalonian Christians to encourage one another with the truth of Christ's imminent return. That is, that's the way we counsel one another as we're going through trials, as we point them forward to the coming of the Lord. So then, the, the response to suffering is, is all faith, right? We, we meditate on the coming of the Lord, and we get it right. That's, that's the answer, right? Well, that's a rhetorical question, and the answer is no. That's, that's not all there is, because here we see the recurring theme of James. Yes, it is faith, but it's also works. Our third and final point this morning is our works while suffering. James makes the case that this faith, this heart establishing, if it does not produce works, it's useless. He said that earlier when it comes to our faith. If it isn't accompanied by works, it's useless. It proves that ultimately, in this case, it was not a heavenly strengthening, but a weak and worthless self-strengthening. There's no works. Like a tree trying to drive its own stakes into the ground by itself. That would be what it would be like if we had faith but no works as it related to our suffering. What are these works then that give evidence of an established heart? Well, in typical James fashion, it's related to how we use our tongues. And this makes sense. For we know that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks as we seek to understand the, the if our heart is established in faith, well, we can look at our tongues. So first, James shows us that the work of our tongue is to be Christ-like in how we talk to each other. Verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. One commentator writes, James is not unsympathetic toward his readers amid their trying circumstances, which tend to make them irritable. For you, if in a time of trial you've been maybe irritable, But he is concerned about eliminating their tendency to grow sullen and exasperated against one another. The warning is against the human tendency when subjected to oppression and injustice to unjustly lash out against those near and dear. So, in other words, these Christian brothers are not being warned against crying out to the Lord against their rich rich oppressors, which is right and good and obedient. That was what they did in chapter five, the first part of chapter 5. But they are being warned about irritability and complaining against each other because of this ongoing oppression by the rich. And we could say for the whole host of various trials that they are encountering. And James links this grumbling to as coming from a position of judgment. It's something James has been warning about in the past in this letter. And this grumbling is a judging of those around us. It's either seeing those around us as one related to the source of our problems, so we can grumble because we see people around us as the source of the suffering we're experiencing, the trials we're experiencing. Or two, it's it's judging those around us by as and grumbling against them because they're not having to endure the same sufferings as me, and thus they're somehow getting off easier. Maybe. You felt that way before. In this way, it is logical that James would proceed to say that we are to avoid doing this so that you may not be judged. For Jesus himself told us in Matthew 7, verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. As we experience suffering in the world around us, one of the chief risks will actually be this, 
to turn on each other, to be suspicious of each other, viewing either those Christians as the source of our problems. If only they had been more reasonable, then I wouldn't be experiencing these trials, this persecution, or judging that surely if, if, they, if they just experience what I'm experiencing, they'd sure be a lot less chipper and, and happy and, and faithful. If they had to go through what I went through, yeah, the, the smile would be off their face then. That's the sort of grumbling that's in mind here. And this is a central problem that we see today in our evangelical subculture. It's a widespread grumbling against each other, particularly now as for the cultural persecution we are beginning to face. Think of several years ago, um, this was the case with a church in the Atlanta area, Crabapple Baptist Church. It was attacked in the media by many Christians for the way that their so-called toxic teaching on gender and sexuality, which is really nothing more than faithful biblical teaching, but they were, they were being criticized by fellow Christians because it had somehow radicalized the Atlanta massage parlor shooter, if you remember that um, event, that tragedy. As if this church had simply taught a different doctrine than the witness of the church would not have been marred. The witness of the Christian church would not have been marred. But be warned, this grumbling will only continue to grow as our cultural norms continue to paganize and thereby our suffering as Christians intensifies. I think this is particularly the case given the outsized focus over the course of the past decade within popular evangelicalism on our witness, which is a term that's often simply been to denote a desire to be viewed favorably through the eyes of the culture. And what I think has happened over the past decade plus is that we've seen in many ways the idolization of our witness and the and losing sight of the words of Jesus in John chapter 15, verse 19, where Jesus says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If our desire to preserve our Christian witness toward the world around us ever reaches the point where we are ridiculing and grumbling against our faithful brothers and sisters, I mean, that is a warning light on the dashboard to ourselves that we have taken our preservation of our witness too far and risk bringing ourselves under the level of judgment that we have pronounced. Grumbling is a sign that we have elevated our witness to the level of idol over and above the brotherly love that we are called to show one another. Because remember, our greatest witness to the world around us is our love for one another, as Jesus says in John 13, 35. And even those who are, quote, conservative can get in on the grumbling, failing to heed the call to believe all things but one another, often in the name of discernment. So how do we balance this correctly? How do we avoid grumbling? Well, I think we see that in this passage. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. We fear the Lord and his coming judgment. And if we do that, it will address the error of jumping to judge and thereby grumbling against those around us. In reverent fear, we are to remember that the judge who will judge you on the basis that you judge judge others is standing at the door. And so if one takes the time 
to be slow to speak and recalls this truth that the judge is standing at the door, I believe it will have, it will serve one in avoiding grumbling. And a tendency toward grumbling happens in the same way with physical suffering. So it can happen in, as we're being mistreated, it can also happen with our bodily physical suffering. Our society's increased focus on victimhood and trauma has trained many people to forget the words of our Lord Jesus in John 16, 33, where he tells us, in the, world, in, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Suffering doesn't make one a victim and doesn't change the Lord's words to us. Take heart. A, folk, a personal victimhood and trauma focus, all it leads to is grumbling against each other. It's an inward-focused view that inevitably grates against those around you. And so, as a warning, any philosophy or teaching that emphasizes victimhood and trauma as the takeaway from suffering is one that is leading one away from the teaching of Jesus, who teaches us that he uses our trials, he redeems our suffering, he has overcome the world, making us more than conquerors, and he calls us not to grumble. And this is especially critical to hear because, as we said, the true judge, as James writes in verse 9, is standing at the door. This is the same language that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 24 when in describing how believers hating one another and grumbling against one another would be a sign of the end times. He, he sums up his teaching in verse 33 and says, So also, when you see all these things, all this grumbling, all this hating, you know that he, the judge, is near at the very gates. Our established hearts must be hearts that are tender-hearted and forgiving one another, toward one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven us. They must be hearts that are trained like the Psalmist David, who says in Psalm chapter 16, verse 3, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. So I pray that we would not elevate ourselves to the position of judge against our brothers, grumbling against them, knowing that as Paul writes in Romans 14, it is before his own master that our brother will stand or fall. So this is hard. This is, suffering is hard, both in terms of simply not reacting in vengeance if we're being mistreated, not reacting in fear if we're being persecuted, but then not turning on the people around us. But James then helps us here. He gives us a real-life example to model after. We read in verse 10, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. So let's consider just one of these prophets, Jeremiah. Jeremiah is an example of someone who endured mistreatment with patience. He was grumbled against. He was called a liar, Jeremiah 43, 32. He was put in stocks, Jeremiah 20, verse 2. He was imprisoned, Jeremiah 32, verse 3. He was cast into a muddy cistern, 38, verse 6. And yet he persisted in his ministry, patiently preaching repentance. In James 1, James wrote, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And James continues here, Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. And Jesus also considered Jeremiah blessed, saying in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. 
Rejoice, for your reward is safe in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you, like Jeremiah. Perseverance through trials without grumbling unites us with that faithful crowd of witnesses who has gone before us. This patient endurance is a means for us to have confidence in our eternal security, to have deepening assurance of salvation. And as we watch those suffer faithfully, it's a good signal to us that these are my brothers and sisters. The fruit, the, the matured fruit of perseverance through trials, it shows who are God's people. We will know them by their fruits. James continues, You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And some might question why Job is given as a second example of patience here, since he did impatiently, you might say, demand that God explain his sufferings to him. If you'd like to learn more about Job and his patience, I'd, uh, I'd encourage you to listen to Denny's sermon this year on, on Job. But Job is an excellent case study for us because though he questioned God, he never gave up his faith. And if he's an example for us, we can see that even the most patient of God's servants won't be perfect until they are glorified. But the, the, the beauty of Job's, Job's patience, we see, is that in the midst of his afflictions, he was able to affirm in Job 23, verse 10, when he has tried me, when the Lord has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Job was able to see that even in the trials of losing his family and his wealth, his health, that God's ways are higher and he's, he is still compassionate and merciful. Job gives us a great example of how our views of our suffering need to adjust to God's omniscience, not to our feelings. Seeing him as compassionate and merciful in the midst of them. The trying of, our, the trying of us is mercifully and compassionately producing gold. One way we can help ourselves respond in this way is to rehearse the gospel to ourselves. We being born into sin have deserved nothing but wrath from God. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and as a result, we can do nothing to commend ourselves or defend ourselves before him. Our sin deserves death, but thankfully, God has been so amazing in his mercy and compassion toward us. Over and against merely having the mercy to allow us to live out our miserable lives without destroying us instantly, that'd be already beyond merciful, God has chosen us for salvation and glory through the work of his son, Jesus. And now we are compassionately counted righteous. We are declared innocent, called sons, washed clean. Now we find ourselves in Christ, and we enjoy the full, in full the fruit of God's mercy and compassion. So if, have you experienced a trial recently? Maybe you're in the midst of a trial. Here is one way to practice responding. Rehearse how the Lord has been merciful and compassionate to you. Let the truth of his character overwhelm the intensity of your feelings. It's the opposite of trauma and victimhood. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'd ask that you hear this call to repent and believe. It's a call to trade the weight of your trials and your sins for the life-giving power of spirit-produced patient endurance. No drug, no experience, no material thing or counselor will provide the answer that a living hope in the coming of the Lord Jesus will provide. 
Now we come to our last verse this morning. Considering our works, we've considered our works, we're considering our works and suffering. We've seen that the works coming out of our tongue must not be against our brothers. We must not grumble. And second, we see the works coming out of our tongues must not be doubting God. James writes finally in verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Commentator Alec Moiter notes that it's very likely that in Old Testament times, people made vows to God while their trouble lasted, promising to fulfill the vow when the cloud of trial lifted again. If you're like me, in a moment of trial, often painful trials, the tendency can be to want to make a dramatic pledge to God, telling him that if he'll be faithful as we understand faithfulness, then we will be faithful in return. But James has always emphasized being practical over dramatic. Here he simply says, do not swear, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. This, James writes, is so that you may not fall under condemnation. It's the sort of condemnation that comes from failing to complete your rash vow, driven by your experience of trial. Jesus says the same thing in, in Matthew chapter 5, telling us simply, do not take an oath at all. And the meaning is similar. Our call is to have a single-minded trust in the Lord during our suffering, not inherently questioning his faithfulness by trying to bind him by an oath. He is always faithful, so our oath-making is only good enough to question his faithfulness, either when his plan doesn't match our requirement of him in our oath, and then we feel thereby that he didn't live up to his end of the deal, it's questioning his faithfulness, or questioning his faithfulness because of our in, and it's a worthless oath because of our inability to match his faithfulness if things come out according to what we thought he should do in our oath and we forget him as we are so often prone to do so this is the path forward for us in enduring the trials we will inevitably face in the year ahead stewarding a proper attitude towards suffering one of patient endurance it's an attitude that is rooted in faith that comes from an established heart a heart that has been so steeped in the promises of Christ's return that no trial of life can pull it off the deeply planted stakes of those promises. And it's a faith accompanied by works, righteous works coming from our tongues, controlled in how we speak to our brothers, not grumbling against them, and controlled in how we speak to God, not making rash vows and thereby doubting him. The suffering will come, but we can be prepared prepared by trusting in the one who said, surely I am coming soon. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will establish our hearts. Give us a resolve to remember that you are coming soon. And we pray that you will, in this year ahead, make that truth a pillar in our hearts, trusting that you will come back to make everything right and that we can thereby be patient, trusting that you are working through our trials to form us into a peaceful crop of righteousness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.